Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing our ongoing series in Sefer Daniel on the, in the book of Daniel. Today we're up to chapter 8. Uh, chapter 8 deals with three horns. Uh, known as the big horn, uh, the little horn, and the final horn. And it's a fascinating prophecy uh, of the rise and fall of both the Medo-Persian and the Greek empires. But it's also a prophecy of the final false messiah, the anti-messiah, to come. And the world is full of false messiahs. Uh, and they've risen up to oppose God's people in every generation. We can, we can go all the way back to Genesis 11 and see the rise and fall of, of, the, of the false religious system of the Tower of Babel uh, under Nimrod, the evil ruler uh, of that system. Mankind has a legacy of false messiahs from the very beginning. Uh, and we have them today as well. Just think of the cult leaders from the last generation, uh, Jim Jones, Charles Manson, Manson uh, Reverend Moon, David Koresh, uh, uh, maybe some modern-day uh, examples uh, could, could include people like uh, Klaus Schwab uh, and George Soros, you know, leaders of, of secular religion, uh, of one-world government, uh, of the Great Reset, of the Green New Deal. Uh, they're secular, but their worldviews are very much a religion to them you know, and, and their followers. So we shouldn't be surprised when false messiahs rise up uh, because the scriptures warn us that God's word will be counterfeited. God's, God's prophets will be counterfeited. God's promised redeemer will be counterfeited. So we need to be alert uh, and watchful. Yeshua said that after him would appear many, in Greek, pseudo-Christos, uh, false messiahs, uh, and they would deceive many. Satan is the ultimate source behind these false religious systems. He goes about disguised uh, as an angel of light. But he's a liar and the father of lies. He counterfeits reality in order to deceive mankind. Now, one of the major thrusts of Daniel's prophecy is to focus on the final ultimate false messiah, who's called by various names in the book of Daniel, a man of sin, a son of perdition, the willful king, the king of fierce countenance, the, uh, the final little horn, the final prince to come. Daniel's giving us a prophecy of hope to Israel uh, because they're in the midst of captivity, uh, and, and Daniel's reminding them that the Lord will not fail them. But yes, there will be a time of the Gentiles, he says, an era of pagan dom uh, dominion and domination over Israel. Yes, there'll be a time when the world is ruled by ungodly men, but it will end with the glorious return of our King, of King Messiah Yeshua. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And we saw that summarized last time, if you were here, in Daniel chapter 7, with the Ancient of Days giving the kingdom to the Son of Man. And now here in Daniel 8, the next chapter, Daniel focuses on two preliminary false messiahs, uh, which he calls the big horn and the little horn, as pictures of the final false messiah, the ultimate anti-messiah, the final horn to come. And interestingly, these two preliminary uh, figures, who are Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes, they had not even yet been born when Daniel wrote this amazing prophecy. Alexander the Great shows us a, uh, 
a picture of the power of the ultimate false messiah. And Antiochus shows us a picture of his evil character. Uh, these are signposts along the way to give us a picture of what the false messiah, the Antichrist, if you will, will be like. Uh, so before we get, uh, so before things get better in the end, they are going to get worse. And Daniel, Daniel discusses this in order to prepare us so we won't be discouraged or disillusioned or surprised when we see things getting worse. Likewise, we read in 2 Timothy uh, 3.13 in the overhead, uh, Paul says, don't be surprised when evil men and impostors grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then we read this in, in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 3, chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. For men, I want you to put yourself, ask yourself as we read this list, is any of this me? For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness and outward religion, but denying the power thereof, not having the spirit within. And so Daniel, after describing the coming kingdom in chapter 7, now here in chapter 8, he starts to deal with the details leading up to this uh, leading up to all this, as given to him in various visions from God. Now note that from Daniel chapters 2 through 7, the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, which is the language of Babylon, uh, because the message is primarily directed uh, to Gentiles and portraying Gentile dominion over Israel. But beginning here in chapter 8 and through the end of the book, the language now changes back to Hebrew. From here on, Daniel will be speaking about the time of the Gentiles as they specifically relate to Israel uh, after the remnant of, of our people have, has returned to the land. Unlike chapters 2 to 7, the action described in chapters 8 to 12 focuses on Israel. Daniel's first vision, we saw last time in chapter 7, sees this broad scope of the entire history of, of the time of the Gentiles all the way to the final establishment of God's kingdom. Now, his second vision here in chapter 8, concerns uh, the medial Persian and the Greek elements of this larger vision, and especially their relationship to Israel. In the rise of Greece, uh, two rulers emerge here in Daniel 8, who are pictures of the final false messiah. So let's turn to Daniel 8, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, uh, after the one that appeared to me previously, i.e. the one in chapter 7. I looked in the vision, and it came about, while I was looking, that I was in the palace of Susa, which is another name for Shushan, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I was besides the Ulai Canal. So note that this vision appears during the third year of the reign of, of King Belshazzar of Babylon, which, if you know your history, is long before the Medo-Persian or the Greek empires arose. Uh, in his vision, he's transported to, to Susa, to Shushan, which was just a minor, small city at that time. But years later, it becomes the royal capital uh, of the Medes and the Persians, as we see in the book of Esther, for example. 
This affirms, uh, again, the supernatural, spirit-inspired nature of Daniel's vision. Uh, verse 3, Daniel 8, verse 3. Then I lifted my gaze, and I looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of, of the canal. Now, the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with a longer one coming up last. Notice the vision takes place in Susa, in Shushan, the future capital of Medio Persia. Uh, and Daniel sees a ram with two horns. Horns are a symbol of power in the scriptures. An animal fights uh, and defends itself uh, with its horns. Uh, in the vision, the horns are high and tall, speaking of great power. One horn is higher than the other, and the higher horn comes up last. On the overhead, uh, fourth century historian, uh, uh, Aminius uh, Marcellinus, he writes this, on all the rulers of Persia, they bore a ram or a ram's head on their garments or on their armor, especially in going into battle. In the zodiac, the sign of Aries, the ram, was connected with, with Persia. Uh, Persian kings also wore golden ram's heads on their heads instead of a crown. The ram symbolizes Persia. The ram in Daniel's vision has two horns, the Persian Empire had, had two parts, Media and, and Persia. One horn is taller than the other, but came up last. In the beginning, Media was dominant, but under Cyrus, the Persians grew more and more powerful and finally overpowered Media, and Persia dominated the combined Medo-Persian Empire. Persia came up last, but was taller and stronger, just like in the vision. Daniel's prophecy, Daniel's prophesying this long before it happens with great detail. Uh, Daniel 8, verse 4. I saw the ram abutting uh, westward, northward, and southward. It pushes in every direction uh, here, uh, but east, because it is eastward. It's, it's, uh, Persia is the empire of the east. Uh, it first attacked westward, conquered Babylon, Syria, Asia Minor. Uh, then it, then it uh, pushed northern, northward, conquered Armenia. And finally south, conquering Egypt, Ethiopia, Libya, and Israel exactly as Daniel says, and in the exact order that Daniel says. Verse 4, I saw the ram budding west, north, and south, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from its power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. Persia ruled the known world, as read in the book of Esther again, from India to Ethiopia. Verse 5, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west, over the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Uh, and the goat had a notable horn, or a big horn, uh, between his, his uh, eyes. Out of the west comes a he-goat. Uh, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel who this is. Look at Daniel 8, verse 20. The ram that you saw with the two horns represents the kings uh, of Media and Persia. And the rough goat, or the he-goat, is the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn, the big horn between his eyes, is the first king. Of, of Greece. The goat is Greece, and the first king is Alexander the Great. Greece is to the west of Medio Persia, just like Daniel's vision says. We see here in Daniel's vision the shifting of Gentile power from the east, from Medio Persia, to the west, uh, to Greece. Alexander the Great conquered the known world. This marked the first time in, in history that a nation from the west had conquered an empire from the east. And we're told this he-goat comes from the west, covers the whole earth without ever touching the ground. This shows both the amount of territory the Greek empire conquered the whole earth and the speed with which it did so, as if it had never touched the ground. 
The Greek Empire stretched from, from Europe to Asia, covering all the Middle East and North Africa as well. Massive empire. And the Greeks came so fast, it was as if they never touched the ground. Under Alexander the Great, they conquered the entire Persian Empire in record time, exactly as Daniel predicts. And this notable horn, this big horn in Daniel's vision is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, he was a military genius. He was born in 356 BC, long after Daniel. In 334 BC, when he was just 22 years old, uh, he marshaled an army and invaded medieval Persia, crossing the Hellespont uh, in, uh, in Asia Minor. He never came home again. Uh, he marched and conquered everywhere he went, uh, all the way to the borders of India. Uh, he conquered the whole world with, with lightning speed. He's a picture of the military power uh, that the final ultimate false messiah will wield in the last days. Uh, Daniel 8, verse 6. The goat came toward the two-headed ram and charged it with great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, uh, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of, of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Alexander totally defeated the Medo-Persian army, but then he dies in 323 BC at the age of 33, choking on his own vomit in a drunken orgy. No army could defeat him, but he was defeated by his own sinfulness. Daniel tells us that then four prominent horns grow up in his place towards the four winds of heaven, and that's exactly what happened. Alexander's empire, was, when he dies, was then divided among his four top generals, each one taking a different geographic regions of the, of the four points of the compass. Alexander was the big horn, and now we meet the little horn. Look at verse 9. Out of one of the horns came another horn, which started small, the little horn, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Out of one of the four horns, out of one of these four generals, comes forth his little horn out of the house of Seleucid in, in Syria, comes forth Antiochus Epiphanes. He expands his power to the south, to the east, and towards the beautiful land, i.e. towards Israel, just as Daniel prophesies. This is the infinite Antiochus Epiphanes from the story of Hanukkah. And he's a picture of the satanic character of the false messiah. Uh, the, and Antiochus begins to impose Hellenistic uh, Greek culture and Greek pagan religion on Israel. He does everything he can do to, to destroy Judaism and the worship of the one true God. And the account of his reign of terror is detailed in First and Second Maccabees. The first thing he does is he appoints this thoroughly Hellenized Jew named Jason to become the high priest. And then he, uh, he builds a gymnasium right under the Temple Mount uh, where the athletes perform uh, in the nude. Many of the priests forsake their duties in the temple to participate in these Greek athletic games in the gymnasium and in the sports arena. All modesty is thrown aside in favor of Greek humanism and secular humanistic culture right in front of the holy temple. Uh, and many Jews begin to despise their own Judaism uh, and their circumcision, the sign of the covenant, uh, and to teach against it. The desire is to assimilate, uh, to fit in, to be just like everybody else, to be just like all the Gentile nations of the earth. 
and their physical nakedness in the Greek sports arena was a symbol of their spiritual nakedness before God as they were without a covering for their sin. Naked and alone and exposed before the judgment seat of God. Indeed, the Greek games were all dedicated to their gods. So this was open worship of the Greek pantheon in this gymnasium, open spiritual warfare. Verse 10, and it, this little horn, Antiochus, it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. So here we see this tremendous spiritual warfare in the heavens itself. Antiochus, or the satanic spirit behind Antiochus, is a picture of the false messiah to come. And he battles against the angelic host. And, and, and some commentators see this as a reference to the persecution of the righteous ones uh, in Israel. Indeed, Daniel 12.3, in Daniel 12.3, the saints are compared to the stars of heaven. So look at Daniel 12, verse 3. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the stars in Daniel's imagery often refer to the people of God. The false messiah, uh, likewise, similar to Antiochus, will come against God's people. Uh, he'll bring about this worldwide bloodbath. The scriptures say he'll wear out the saints of the Most High. You know, Hitler murdered one-third of our people. Zechariah 13 says the false messiah will slaughter two-thirds of those in Israel. He'll do all he can during this so-called great tribulation, the time of Yaakov's trouble, to destroy, number one, all believers in Messiah, and number two, to destroy all of God's covenant people, Israel. He will massacre the godly. And that's exactly what we see with Antiochus. Uh, he's casting down and trampling underfoot the people of God. Alexander the Great shows us the power of the false messiah. Antiochus shows us his satanic personality and the character of the anti-messiah. We'll persecute and slaughter our people, the Jews, just like Antiochus did. First Maccabees tells us that Antiochus started out uh, with worship of Zeus and Apollo in the stadiums. And then he brought it into the very temple of God. He sets up this abomination of desolations, which was a statue of Zeus with his own face superimposed on it, right in the Holy of Holies. And he decreed that if any Jew participated in any Jewish ceremony, Shabbat, Kashrut, circumcision, Torah study, bringing sacrifices to the Lord, the penalty was death. Death. He forced the people to sacrifice to the Greek gods and to eat swine's flesh. Many Jews chose to die rather than be defiled. And so just like Daniel 8.10 says, Antiochus slaughters them. He massacres them. Uh, he, he would kill uh, babies who'd be, who had been circumcised and hang the corpse on the mother's neck until the flesh rotted and putrefied and drove the mothers mad. He declared himself a god, which is what epiphanies means, and demanded to be worshipped, just like the ultimate false messiah will. As we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, it says, The false messiah, this man of lawlessness, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 in the overhead, please, uh, he will exalt himself above every so-called God, an object of worship, and he'll, and he'll take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Similarly, Revelation 12 describes how the anti-messiah will persecute God's people both natural Israel, 
depicted in Revelation 12 uh, uh, as, as a woman who gives birth to a male child, to the Messiah, and to the rest of her offspring, uh, to the believers, described in Revelation 12, 17, as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Yeshua. How will the false Messiah accomplish this? Well, Antiochus gives us a picture. He comes to Israel in deceit, uh, speaking false words of flattery and peace. And the Jews believed him and welcomed him into Jerusalem. But then he falls upon the unsuspecting city with an armed force and smokes it with the sword, killing thousands, destroying homes, stealing property, taking women and children captive. And tragically, many of our people join Antiochus and forsake the Torah and commit evils in the land and drive the faithful remnant into hiding in rocks and in hills and caves. And then Antiochus, he sets up this abomination of desolations in the temple. Antiochus, he rents the Torah scrolls in pieces. He burns them. Uh, and where any Jew was found with a Torah scroll or practicing the commandments, they were put to death. And on the 15th of Kislev, Antiochus sacrifices a pig on the altar. Look at Daniel 8, verse 11. The little horn set itself up as, as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. And it took away, this little horn took away the daily sacrifices from the Lord, and his sanctuary, the Lord's sanctuary, was thrown down. Verse 11 says, Antiochus, this little horn, magnifies himself to be equal to the commander of hosts. At a night, Zivaot. He makes himself equal with God. And he stops the sacrifices and throws down the altar. First Maccabees documents, this is, this, all this occurred just as Daniel prophesied. Many Jews adopted Greek religion, uh, sacrificed to idols, profaned the Shabbat, ceased bringing offerings to the Lord, polluted the sanctuary, uh, profaned the holy days, built altars on graves, uh, erected temples to idols, and sacrificed pig's flesh, and left their sons uncircumcised. Made, they made themselves abominable to the Lord. And whoever wouldn't do as Antiochus commanded was put to death. Antiochus attempted to destroy the entire system of Jewish worship. Look at verse 12, Daniel 8, verse 12. And on account of the transgression, the righteous ones will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice. It prospered in all that it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Another reading of verse 12 says, the, the host will be given over to him, meaning many of God's people will, will join with him and move against the daily sacrifices. Hellenistic, assimilated Jews will join Antiochus and will persecute their own people. Verse 12 also says, Antiochus, this little horn, cast truth to the ground. What's truth? God's word, right? John 17, 17, thy word is truth. Antiochus cast it to the ground. He, he literally uh, tears up and burns God's word. John 17, 17. So sin will continue wherever there's, there's a willing heart uh, and fertile soil. And the truth is, we all have wicked inclinations, the Yetzirah, this evil inclination, uh, deep in our hearts. Uh, and we have feet that run to do evil. That's why the natural man cannot know God. That's why we must be born again. We must be regenerated from above. We need a new creation heart. And to have God's spirit put, put, put within us, as Ezekiel says, to remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. As Moses says, we need a circumcised heart, the indwelling of God's spirit, so that we may be reborn from above. This is the promise of the Messiah. 
Without Yeshua in our heart, we remain in the flesh, we remain in our sins and our impure sin nature. But Yeshua promises if you put your active trust in him, he will regenerate you. And he will give you a new birth, a new heart, and a new spirit, the spirit of God. Without this new birth, Yeshua says you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Yeshua says in John 14, 6, on the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. John 3, 19, light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. That's the choice people make. Well, how long will this continue for? How long will Antiochus prosper? Verse 13 asks how long the regular sacrifices will cease. Look at Daniel 8, 13. How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? This vision concerning the daily sacrifices, uh, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, the trampling underfoot uh, of the Lord and his people. The ultimate false messiah, the Antichrist, will hold sway, the scriptures say, for, for 1,250 days or 42 months, or three and a half years, also called time, times, and half a time. And Yeshua says in Matthew 24, that if it lasts any longer than these three and a half years, no one will be left alive. But what about Antiochus? How long will he last? Look at Daniel 8, 14. He said to me, it'll take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. This, this reference means... 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices, which, is, which equals 1,150 days, just over three years, which is the exact amount of time the temple was indeed defiled until it was cleansed by the Maccabees on Kislev 25, just over three years later, after the abomination of desolation, what was erected. The context of this passage is talking about the daily sacrifices, and they were brought twice a day in the morning and the evening. So 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices, therefore, equals 1,150 days. And according to the book of Maccabees, Antiochus defiled the temple on Kislev 15, 168 B.C., and the Maccabees rededicate the temple on Kislev 25, 165 B.C., just over three years later, just as Daniel says. The Maccabees, they achieved this miraculous victory over Antiochus just over three years from when he defiled his temple, again, as the story of Hanukkah uh, uh, tells us. And as bad as he was, the scary thing is that he'll be nothing compared to the evil and satanic hatred against God's people of the coming false Messiah. So how do we respond? How do we prepare uh, and endure? We first of all must be aware there is a battle going on, spiritual warfare, a battle between good and evil. A battle for your soul. You can't see it in the natural, but it's there, and it's real, and it's not a game. Satan plays for keeps. So you need to expect attack and expect temptation and attack in your personal relationships uh, and persecution and injustice uh, and betrayal and suffering. And expect Satan to try to twist the truth. That's what he does. Uh, to try to, to expect him to try to make you feel sorry for yourself. Uh, and turn you against your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. And to have others uh, take, uh, take offense at the littlest thing. And, and, and yourself as well. To so be aware of Satan's schemes. Do not lose heart. Cling to the Lord. Resist the devil. Assume the best of your fellow believers. 
you know, when a soldier in war is shot at, he's not shocked, right? His feelings aren't hurt. <laughs> he doesn't peek over the foxhole at the enemy and shout out, was it something I said? <laughs> no, he expects attack. A good soldier plans on it. That is spiritual realism. One of the biggest ploys of the enemy is to pit one brother or sister against another and try to create offenses in their mind. And I am always amazed how easily people take offense at a fellow brother or sister and assume the worst uh, and hold a grudge and have a critical and judgmental spirit. But if we humble ourselves and admit we too are sinners and forgive our brothers and sisters from our heart, then we defeat the schemes of the enemy. We're called to endurance and perseverance. We're called to self-control and long-suffering. And we're called to kindness and gentleness and goodness and the ministry of reconciliation, the fruits of the Spirit. Revelation 14, 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their trust in Yeshua. Yeshua says in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. Hallelujah. In this world, you will have suffering. You will have trouble and disappointment. You'll have even betrayal uh, and pain, but take heart. Be courageous. Yeshua has overcome the world. Think of all those who've been martyred for their faith. You know, John wrote the book of Revelation during the reign of terror of the emperor of Domitian. Uh, he hated believers. He had them thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, burned at the stake, wrapped in skins of animals and then fed to wild dogs, dipped in tar and used as human torches. Mothers were crucified with their babies draped around their necks. And this wasn't just back in the first century. This continues today. In over 60 countries, millions of believers are persecuted, arrested, tortured, and killed because of their faith. In Sudan, it's the death penalty to convert away from Islam. Christian villages are routinely massacred uh, by marauding bands of Muslim militants. Children are kidnapped and sold into slavery. Mothers have their breasts chopped off with machetes so they won't be able to nurse their babies and the babies will starve to death. These are our brothers and our sisters in the Lord being tor tortured and slaughtered for their faith in Yeshua. Mehdi Dabaj was a Christian pastor in Iran. He was in prison for more than 10 years for the crime of, quote, apostasy. Recently, they found his body dumped in a park in Tehran, riddled with burns and, and gunshot wounds. These are the words he wrote when he was still in prison. I have always envied, let's stop right there. Who do you envy? What do you think he'll say next? I've always envied those believers who all through history were martyred for Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. What a privilege to live for our Lord and to die for him as well. And that's what he did. He died for his faith in Yeshua. Several years ago, while Ethiopia was still, still under Marxist rule, a pastor there named Nagusi was arrested for showing the Yeshua film. Witnessing was forbidden, but Nagusi would do it anyways, even in prison. When the guards would catch him, they would beat him publicly to make an example out of him. 
But then some of the guards would come to him in secret and ask him, who is this Yeshua? And why do you suffer for him so? Nikusi had such a radiant faith that when the prison guards wanted a break, they put him in charge of watching the prisoners. The Ethiopian, Ethiopian believers, they came to call the prison, quote, the university. Because they said that was where God sent his people to grow them up in great faith. Why? Because God is with us, even in our pain and suffering. Especially in our pain and suffering. Indeed, one of the deepest mysteries of God is that he willingly shares in and partakes of our pain and suffering. Eli Brizel, famous Holocaust survivor, wrote an autobiography uh, called Night. And he writes of the unspeakable horrors he endured at two concentration camps, at Buna and at Auschwitz. Uh, one of the events lives forever in his memory. A little boy, uh, 12 years old, uh, had been caught stealing a loaf of bread and sentenced to death. The boy, he says, had a refined and beautiful face, so different from, from the gaunt, disfigured faces of, of most of the other prisoners. The face said Rizel uh, of a sad angel. The SS erected three gallows, one for the child, two more for other condemned prisoners, uh, sentenced to die on either side of him. As the child's neck was placed in the noose, he stood there silently, like a lamb is silent before its shearers. A cry comes up from the row of anguished spectators, these other prisoners being forced to watch. One prisoner in the crowd cries out, where is God? Where is he? The chairs under the victims were then tipped over and the bodies jerked and then dangled limply from the ropes. The guards ordered all the prisoners to march past the three victims. It was a terrible sight. Uh, the two adults were, were clearly dead, their, their tongues hanging out, swollen and blue, but the third rope was still twitching. The child, being so light, was still alive. It took the boy a half an hour to slowly die. The prisoners were forced to file past him, uh, looking at him as his life slowly ebbed away. Behind me, says Wiesel, I heard the same man ask, where is God now? And then I heard a voice within me answer, where is he? He's here. He's hanging on the gallows. That question where is God, has haunted Wiesel and thousands of other survivors like him who cried out in their human hells and heard no answer. Wiesel, an atheist, may have intended his words to mean that God was dead, but he said more than he realized. Just like Caiaphas, Caiaphas who says it's expedient for one to die for the nation, or, or the Jews who cried out to Pilate, uh, let his blood be upon us. They said more than they realized. Because these same words, he's hanging on the gallows, can also mean that God in the person of Yeshua suffered alongside that little boy. Just as he grieves and suffers with every pain of all the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Eve. Indeed, God himself 
has undergone a series of self-humiliations for the sake of his people. In the covenants, in the failed monarchy, in the exile, in his own incarnation and trial and beatings and crucifixion. At the hands and at the hands of, head of a, a very human congregation of believers, the body of Messiah. And in each of these roles, he participates in our pain. The scriptures give overwhelming emphasis to God's passionate involvement with his creation. The Bible is virtually a catalog of the Lord's emotions and how he relates to his humanity. From, the, from Ghani Dan onward, God places himself in the position of an anxious father who has nervously let his children run free. Each key event in the Tanakh tells us of God sharing the pain, or less frequently the triumph, of his people. He heard the cries of the captives in Egypt. For 40 years, he pitched his tent in the wilderness, tabernacling with his people Israel, despite their disobedience. Isaiah 63, verse 9 in the overheads declares, In all their distress, he too was distressed. The prophets emphasize time and again the depth of the Lord's emotional attachment to his people, whom he even calls his bride. Uh, the book of Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, it's filled with the cries of a wounded God. Jeremiah 31, 20, the Lord laments over his unfaithful people, crying out, My heart yearns for Ephraim. My heart's broken. I have great compassion for him. Hosea links Israel's unfaithfulness to a harlot. And God, God weeps in Hosea, why did you forsake me? My people have forgotten me. In Isaiah 42, 14, the Lord says, for a long time I kept silent. I've been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp, I pant. The scriptures reveal a God who is not remote, who is not distant, but one who is intimately involved in his creation. He goes with his people into exile, into captivity, into the fiery furnace, into the very grave. God participates in our suffering. Love involves giving. And God, self-complete, only has himself to give. He does not suffer out of some deficiency. It's a deficiency of his being, no, but from the very love that overflows from his being. That is, in fact, how the Gospels actually define love, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, what? That he gave his one and only son. The Chinese language combines the two concepts of love and pain in an eloquent symbolism. In Chinese, the character that expresses the highest form of love is created by having the symbols for love and for pain brushed on top of one another to form a word kind of like pain love. Thus, a mother pain loves her child. She pours out her whole being on the child's behalf. In essence, God showed pain love to his creation by emptying himself and joining us in the incarnation and humble himself even unto death on the cross. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's pain love for us. The cross expresses the suffering of God himself. He joined humanity 
by stepping into this historical plane and letting us see him in shame uh, and nakedness and pain. One Jewish rabbinical argument uh, against Yeshua being the son of God goes like this. If God couldn't bear to see his own son Isaac slain, surely he wouldn't let his own son die. But could the whole thrust of the gospel be more widely missed? The scriptures say God gave us his sons, uh, gave up the, um, his own son precisely because he couldn't in love bear to see those such as Yitzhak suffer. Romans 8, 31. God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How, he, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Hallelujah. The truth is, God really is on the gallows with that boy at Buna. God takes the great pain of his own son's death and uses it to blot up unto himself all the pains of our own sufferings here on earth. He ultimately absorbs our pain into himself, bearing it on the tree. Paul, moreover, speaks of us even sharing in the fellowship of Messiah's sufferings. In two profoundly suggestive passages, Yeshua identifies with his suffering people so completely that he fills their place and bears their pain. First one, Matthew 25. Yeshua accepts our, our, our own ministry to the, to the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the naked, the vagrants, the prisoners, as if it was done for him. He says in Matthew 25, 40, Truly I tell you, whenever you did it for one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. And in the second one, in Acts 9, verse 4, during Paul's blinding epiphany on the road to Damascus, Yeshua asks, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Yeshua is saying the whips and the stones directed by Paul against the Messianic Jewish believers had fallen on Yeshua himself. So complete is his, 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 his identification with the pain of his people. Ali Bizel was right in a way. God did hang on the gallows with a lightly twitching body of a young boy at Buna with a face like a sad angel. And likewise, Yeshua hangs on our own private gallows and our own private pains. He's been here in person, serving a sentence for a crime he did not commit. He is still here, receiving your suffering, making it his own. When Yeshua appears with disciples in the upper room, after the resurrection, uh, he bids doubting Thomas to place his hands into the holes in Yeshua's hand and in his side. Yeshua holds up his hands, and Thomas sees the imprint of the nails. Uh, he sees the wound and the scars of the crucified and risen one. And Thomas responds, my Lord and my God, why did Yeshua keep his scars? He could have had a perfect body. Oh or no physical body at all when he returned to the splendor of heaven. Instead, he carries with him this remembrance of his time here on earth. For a reminder of his time here, he chooses scars. Indeed, the only man-made thing in heaven are his wounds. That's why I say God hears and understands your pain 
and even absorbs it into himself. He keeps these scars as a lasting image of wounded humanity. He has been here. He has borne the sentence. The pain of man has become the pain of God. And because of this, in the book of Revelation, John says that those who've experienced suffering and those who've experienced persecution and pain come out of the tribulation doing what? Singing. This is the mark of the followers of the Lamb that was slain. They rejoice even in persecution. They're cheerful even in tribulation. They sing. They sing in prison. They sing in the desert. They sing in danger. They sing in the night. They sing in the hospital room even when the diagnosis is, is bad. They sing at gravesides at the face of death. They even sing in the midst of terrible persecution and unbelievable suffering. Like that Christian girl from Sudan we talked about last time if you were here. Who continued to sing hymns even as the Muslim soldiers repeatedly raped her and then shot her. And then to stop her singing, finally took machetes and hacked through her neck. And at last, the singing stopped. What is it that enables a girl who's dying in a pool of her own blood, who's been brutalized beyond our ability to imagine, to go on singing to Yeshua with the last breath she could draw? It's the power of God. It's the lamb who was slain who's overcome the world. John says it's the mark of all those who follow the Lamb. So whatever you're going through today, if your heart is aching because you're alone, or because your ex-spouse abandoned or abused you or was unfaithful to you, or if you're estranged from your children, or you've gotten bad news from the doctor, or you're in desperate financial need, or you have other problems and you can't see a solution. Or you're in enormous pain. Listen to the promise you are given in Revelation, 20, Revelation 7, verse 15. John's talking to all those who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That is you and me and all who've trusted in Yeshua. And he says this, that before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them, Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is our glory and our hope. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Music team, please come up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these prophecies here in Daniel 8. These prophecies of Alexander, of Antiochus, pictures of the power and the character of the final false Messiah to come. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that in the end, Yeshua prevails. And he establishes his kingdom here on earth, ruling and reigning from Yerushalayim. Lord, help us to be prepared for these days to come. Help us to get our own house in order. For just as uh, Trey prayed earlier today, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Lord, you tell us in the last days, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, 
boastful and arrogant, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, gossips, without self-control, lovers of pleasure, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. So Lord, today help us to examine ourselves, to take note of, of these character flaws, uh, to, to run from them, to repent if any of these describe us. And if we're honest, many of them do describe us. Lord, help us to turn from these sins and to turn back to you. Help us not to be so quick to take offense. Lord, we repent from our critical spirit. Lord, we repent from our judgmental attitude. Uh, we repent from all to us often assuming the worst of a fellow believer instead of obeying your word and assuming the best and not keeping a record of wrongs. Lord, we repent today of our bitterness and our grudges, of our cold hearts, of our, of our self-centered stubbornness and pride. Help us to guard our unity in you, uh, not to allow the enemy to, to divide and conquer. Help us to be, to be wise to his schemes. Lord Yeshua, we submit to you. We humble ourselves. We resist the devil. And we sing. We sing our everlasting praises to you. And we pray this and we sing this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.